This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. It looks like Local 1005 has accepted the offer from Bedrock Industries, uh, as has uh, the uh, other 8782, which paves the way for hopefully this deal to finally come to fruition and everybody to get moving on. Now, part of that whole deal has to do with surplus property at the old Stelco lands. And that begs the question, of course, what should be done with the former Stelco land? Now, some of this is still going to be used for steelmaking. We get that. But there's an awful lot of land. Anybody who's traveled along Burlington Street over the last number of years knows there's an awful lot of land there that has been sitting vacant for the longest time now. And what's going to be done with it? Who's going to benefit from it? There's an awful lot of questions to be asked at this stage. Well, the city of Hamilton has taken its first steps towards turning that land into potentially offices, maybe movie studios and green space. It sounds a pretty inventive and pretty far-fetched idea for some, but, it, hey, anything's doable at this stage, I suppose. So what is the city planning, and what is going to happen, and how are they going to get control of this? Let's bring Chad Collins into the conversation. He is the uh, city councilor, of course, for Ward 5 in the east end of the city, and, of course, has uh, been a uh, standard bearer for waterfront development for the city for the longest time right now. Chad, thanks for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Uh, is there a light at the end of the tunnel? Do you see that we're finally going to get some some answers and maybe move towards actually doing something with these lines now? I hope so. I mean, there's some positive optimism around the table as it relates to where we go next. And there, we've always had that looming question in the background in terms of, you know, what is next after steel or what is next after um, the exodus of, you know, some dozens of major giant corporations, manufacturers over the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and up until today. You know, we've just seen many of them leave that industrial landscape in the Bayfront area. And um, as you mentioned, steel is going to be an important part of our city's fabric uh, and uh, economic development scene for years and years to come. And so um, I, I think the opportunity that exists is that those steel companies that are still with us are operating on a much smaller template of land than they were you know, 20 or 30 years ago. And so there are surplus properties, and um, we can look at it in two ways. We can look at it as, you know, something that uh, creates all kinds of challenges for us, or we can look at it um, from an opportunity perspective. Um, and there, there are all kinds of opportunities. I mean, many of the attributes that um, encouraged investors over 100 years ago to locate and invest in that area still exist today. It's, you know, on the busiest port on the Great Lakes. Um, we are stone's throw from the U.S. border. We have um, a highly trained and skilled uh, workforce here in Hamilton, and um, and we have now have vacant land, and uh, and certainly it's not without its hurdles. You know, we have infrastructure issues down there. Much of the infrastructure underground is is deficient and is not up to today's standards. Um, we certainly have a level of contamination in the area, and we would be certainly seeking help from the province and the federal government uh, to help us with those remediation efforts. And, um, and we have planning policies that are outdated. And we are currently going through a Bayfront strategy. In fact, we have a public meeting next Monday night at the Eva Rothwell Center where we're soliciting public input and asking the public and other stakeholders as to what they would like to see in the Bayfront area and what new standards should be created. Um, because we have investors who are knocking and they're looking for land and, um, and they're looking to make investments in this area. And we know that the investments that were made, you know, 20, 30 years ago uh, will not be the investments we see, um, you know, on the horizon for that same area of the city. Now, you know, there are going to be people that are going to look at that land right now and say, look, it's garbage, it's contaminated, there's all kinds of problems. Uh, we don't see that there's there's much opportunity to do a whole lot here. But I, I'm going to remind them, uh, and maybe some of them that are going to say that weren't even here 25 years ago or so, 
uh, what the West Harbor looked like back in those days. And and the, for those that don't, the, that was a contaminated site that a lot of people had written off, the Lax property, and it was an industrial site uh, right by the rail yards there. And uh, and I still remember when you asked me and a couple of other guys to go for a drive with you along with Werner Plessel along those old tracks there and said, here's the vision for this. And mm-hmm. that, well, good luck with that. You know, it, it sounded fabulous. Now look what's happened to the West Harbor. It can be done. It, you're right. It, it takes a number of things to make that happen. It, it takes a plan, and that industrial strategy, the Bayfront strategy, sorry, that I just referenced is part of that. In order to determine what's next, we, we need a vision, and we need something that we can market and sell to investors uh, we need resources, and so you know you've covered and others have covered the fact that the province and the federal government and the port authority need to be stakeholders around the table to talk about how we pay for some of these investments and and the implementation of that vision. And of course, we need the community. We need people around us who share that vision and advocate through successive elections at all levels of government to implement that plan. And I think your analogy that you've raised in terms of the West Harbor area. And we're seeing it now with Pier 7 and 8. At one point in time, that was really an industrial wasteland. I mean, the, you know, Bayfront Park sits on an, a, a former uh, uh, landfill. And, uh, and, and the trail area around the harbor area sits on rail lines and rail lands that were used not too many years ago. Mm-hmm. And Williams Coffee Pub and the, and the ice rink that everyone enjoys, that sits on industrial fill and is former, former industrial land. So it, 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 that vision that was created by successive councils and successive levels of government um, has finally come to fruition. We're still implementing that, and we'll continue to do so over the next 10 or 20 years. Now we're, we're, we're focusing our efforts on a different area, an industrial area. And, and, I, and I don't foresee, you know, what's happened in Toronto, Bill. As, you know, we've watched, I think, over the years uh, as Toronto's uh, portlands have just been swallowed up by the residential community. The real estate market, um, you know, the, the prices have been off the charts, and there's been tremendous pressure to take those industrial lands out of circulation and develop residential uses. We won't see that here. We cer- we're certainly a still a different real estate market for as much as we're one of the strongest markets in the country. And, you know, our council's focus right now is growing the non-residential tax base. And so that those industrial lands are important to us. So I think what we will start to see is the reduction of heavy industry and a focus on light industry, commercial, uh, maybe office buildings around the fringes, and, um, you know, a, a new kind of employment base. And, you know, the days of just signing someone up on a lease and uh, letting them do whatever they want on those lands, I, I think, is a thing of the past. And council needs to be prepared to start to implement some standards as it relates to ensuring that when those lands are used, that they're not abused, that we don't see the continued industrial fallout that we start to get away from the brownfields contamination issues. And we're more cognizant, certainly, of what some of these industries are putting into the sewer system and then eventually into the harbor and into the lake. So those are the issues that, you know, we're going to grapple with over the next uh, number of weeks and months and years. And this new Bayfront strategy that we're developing will really chart a new course for the city's waterfront. The gold standard when you talk about waterfront development is, is nine times out of ten you talk to anybody about this, and they always bring up the, the Navy Pier in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And, and what's happened. I know you've seen that. You've toured that. Uh, mm-hmm. Others, I know many people listening to, the, to our conversation right now have been down there. And, and you're right. I don't see too many waterfronts that have been developed any better than that. It just seems as everything you could possibly want to do with a waterfront has been done in Chicago uh, mm-hmm. with an old naval yard that was polluted and, and contaminated like, like ours is right now. Is that what you're shooting for or variations on that theme? Do you envision something like that happening? 
I think we're going to see a mixed mix of land uses. And, and so you've referenced certainly recreational portion that we have in the West Harbor with, um, you know, the recreational trail system, the rink and other amenities. And of course, we're introducing residential uses right on the water with Pier 7 and 8. And I don't want anyone to forget that we have a very active and growing beach community in the East Harbor along uh, along uh, the QEW stretch there on the dunes, uh, the area that I represent. And, and that area has seen some tremendous growth of late. In between those residential and commercial, uh, sorry, recreational uses, Bill, we'll see um, new standards created for industry, and we'll see hopefully the introduction of office uses and um, and maybe even some limited retail uses around the fringes. I mean, th- there needs to be a clear separation between, you know, what what we have on Barton Street and what kind of investments are made in the future in the Bayfront area. Right now, there's a stark contrast between you have residential homes that abut heavy industry. And somehow, with this new plan, we need to start creating buffers. And so just as we have a buffer with the Pier 7 and 8 development, with the Haida and the um, the military base um, on Pier 9, and that's kind of the buffer between heavy industry and what we see in the West Harbor, we, we need that to the south. We need a buffer area between heavy industry and the residential community, whether you're using Barton Street or, or another uh, east-west corridor, we start to we need a clear separation and delineation between um, those industrial uses, the truck traffic that comes with it. I mean, we know that there's you know there's some baggage that comes with heavy industry as it relates to air and and other problems that people odors that people uh, you know have faced historically. And so this plan seeks to try to make that area more marketable. And and within all of that, we're dealing with that image, that industrial skyline that uh, dominates the look over the Skyway Bridge and from the QEW that millions of people see every day. Um, you know, that that um, skyline has built this city over 100 years. That skyline will look a lot different over the next uh, couple of decades as we implement this plan that we, we're currently developing, and we see new investments that take a different shape and a different form. But for those that feel that way, and, and, and that's one of the criticisms we've always heard, you know, people that drive over the Skyway, oh, look, at there's mm-hmm. Hamilton, those steel mills. And mm-hmm. by the, and I share your vision, by the way. I'm proud of that, too. I mean, that, that's, you know, what built the city in so many ways, and yep. it's not going away anytime soon. But the right. other end of that, the other end of that, the total opposite of that is to say, well, let's just make that green space so it'll look a lot prettier from the Skyway. Uh, and and that's, that's a laudable goal in itself. But at the same time, I know that the city is looking at that and say, look, it, we, there's a, you have to generate money from this as well. You can't just make it a nice, beautiful green space. Uh, that there's an opportunity here for for business development here and for the city to accrue some money through taxes, which is the way it used to be in those good old days. How do you find that balance? And it, it is a balance. It's just that, Bill. It's it's you know it, we have to be cognizant of the fact that it's the the most active port on the Great Lakes right now, and there are still thousands of of people who rely on that uh, geographic area for their employment. And the city relies on that geographic area for millions and millions of dollars in tax assessment. And so if it was gone tomorrow, there would be tremendous strain on the rest of the city, on the residential base, on the commercial tax base, and on other investors who have located in some of our modern industrial parks. And I think that's what we're going to. We're, We're going to see standards implemented in this area that are much like those that you would see in the Ancaster Industrial Park that you might see in the Red Hill Industrial Park. Um, we'll see advanced manufacturing. We've certainly seen a tremendous investment um, in the food processing, sorry, food processing industry. And so, you know, those investments will only happen in this area of the city if we create standards. And right now there are none. There are none with K-zoned industry. It's essentially, and you, you see it, travel down Burlington Street, look on either side of your vehicle as you're driving through that corridor, 
and you see outdoor storage, you'll see um, storage tanks, you'll see, you know, the scrapyards that we have there. And, and, you know, for as much as there is some employment and it's generating some tax assessment, um, it, it certainly doesn't compare to modern industrial parks. It's not providing the same quality of jobs. And there's the, certainly the whole issue of the environmental issues that we were left with uh, and the legacies that we're left with over successive generations and, and, and time. So we'll start to see those new standards, I'm hoping, as part of this new, this new vision and this new strategy. And we'll start to see some changes. So it will, it will be used for employment. We'll certainly see manufacturing. Uh, again, to reiterate, steel isn't going anywhere in the foreseeable future. Um, but on the fringes, where there are vacant lands and there are opportunities for new investment, hopefully we start to see a different kind of investment. Well, let's, let's talk about that. i got a couple of minutes left here. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you decided to, to move forward with the plans for uh, Pier 7 and 8 down by the Williams Coffee Pub, we now know that there are quite a few people that are expressing interest in partnering, private sector enterprises that want to partner with that mm-hmm. because of, of, of what you wanted to see down there. You're talking about a different picture now for this end of the harbor with these lands that, uh, that potentially could fall into the city's hands right now. Are there people that are going to knock on the door now, different kinds of developers, different kinds of people that could develop a plan such as what you're talking about? I believe so. We've hired Deloitte to assist us with the plan and the development uh, and the outreach to the community. And that includes to some of the current uh, uh, operators in the Bayfront area. So there is some reluctance to start implementing standards that certainly will create some constraints for those people and those operations that, um, you know, have been operating a certain way for decades and decades. And whenever you implement change, um, it can come, uh, there can be a cost, certainly to industrial operators, when you start talking about the need to cover uh, outdoor storage piles, when you start talking about the need to pave. I mean, it's it's hard to believe that there, you know, there are a number of operations there that don't have paved parking lots, they don't have paved entrances. And so that creates you know, an element of uh, fallout and, and pollution for us in the city. And and so there's a reluctance, certainly, for, for some change for the existing uses and, and it's not about, you know, ushering them out the door. It's about trying to attract new investments around them. And we have, to answer your question, Bill, we have received, um, you know, uh, um, investors who have inquired with economic development to talk about ways and means in which to um, make it more palatable for them to to make investments in that area. And and many of the complaints that we receive is that there, there needs to be standards. Fairly hard to, re- to locate um, a, a new head office next to an area where, you know, it, it's an active recycling yard. Uh, they're just incompatible uses in many respects. And so what investors are asking for are standards, and those standards will slowly be implemented over time, and will start to create a better environment for them to prospectively invest in an area that has lots of opportunity. Well, and there's the key word, opportunity, right now, with uh, what seems to be happening here in the province, jumping on side as a potential partner, at least in some way, shape, or form right now. Uh, it looks like there's a, a, a unseen opportunities right now that uh, probably even 10, 15 years ago we never even envisioned. Absolutely. Chad, thank you so much for the time. Greatly appreciate it, and uh, good luck with this going forward. Thank you, Bill. Take care. That's uh, Chad Collins, of course, counsel for Ward 5. Uh, and, and with this deal that's coming through it, and with the province now telling uh, the city, by the way, that, okay, if you don't need five years, if you, you think that's too small a time frame for you to develop what you want to develop there, they'll make it 10 years. And it looks like Finance Minister Souza seems to be on board with that now. Uh, there is opportunity here in, in that part of the city. And uh, I know that some folks like uh, Jeremy Freiberger and others have already talked about what they'd like to see, maybe even be a partners in some of the development down there. Uh, this is a pretty exciting time for that part of the city. 
So finally, driving over Burlington Street, and you may look over there to those lands and see something pretty spectacular in the next few years. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. One year from today uh, is the scheduled date for the next provincial election here in the province of Ontario, uh, because we have fixed election dates. But could there be a snap election before that? Well, Steve Pakin mulled the idea over on his, in his blog. You can uh, see that, by the way, at uh, tvo.org, and uh, go to the blogs, and you can see uh, Pakin, uh, his, his blogs there all the time. And it's an interesting concept. I know there are pros and cons to it as well. Uh, it wouldn't be the first time a government's uh, done something like that. Steve Pakin, of course, is the host of The Agenda on TVO, and, uh, of course, award-winning author. His uh, latest book on uh, former Ontario uh, Premier Bill Davis continues to fly off the shelves in bookstores and Amazon places all over the province. And Steve joins us on the Bill Keller Show to talk about the blog and the possibility of a snap election. Stephen, how are you doing today? Just great, thanks, Bill, and all the better for hearing your voice. Well, great to have you with us again. I know you've been busy uh, going around the province, as a matter of fact, doing this, that, and the other thing, and, of course, uh, doing book signings, and that's going well, isn't it? Uh, I was in Midland last night, got home at about 12.30 in the morning, and uh, feeling no worse for wear. It's amazing. Um, you know, Bill Davis has been out of public life for 32 years, and yet there are just so many Ontarians who know him and remember him, and the book is now in its third printing, and I couldn't be happier. Well, it's a great read for anybody that hasn't picked it up yet, uh, and they should do that. So what about this? Uh, as, as we, uh, uh, Ironically, of course, uh, or there's this in the back of your mind when you did the blog, that this is the day, one year from today, is when we're scheduled to go to the polls. That's exactly right. And in fact, our program on the agenda tonight will have the Deputy Premier and the Leader of the Opposition and the Leader of the NDP, Hamilton's own Andrew Horvath, uh, three one-on-ones tonight on what they anticipate over the next year in the lead-up to the election, one year exactly from today, or maybe not. You know, you're right. We do have a fixed election date law in the province of Ontario. The previous Liberal government under Dalton McGuinty passed that law so that there would be predictability on elections and Theoretically, premiers couldn't use this to their advantage to go when the polls are hot and maybe avoid an election when things are not. Um, But there's nothing in that fixed election date law that says if he or she wants to, a premier couldn't go early. And I just laid out in the blog post on the website tvo.org some reasons why the liberal backroom strategists may want to consider an early election call. And, uh, you know, it's all laid out there for people to read. Well, and let's talk about some of those, because uh, I, I know that there's an awful lot of angst among many people in the province right now, and Kathleen Wynne had historically low uh, acceptability rates not too long ago, But uh, and, and it's not as if she skyrocketed back to the top by any stretch of the imagination, but there's been some movement there, hasn't there? Yes, indeed there has. And polling uh, from numerous different public opinion survey outfits has picked up the fact that Wynn's now, you know, Wynn has always run behind her own party, right? The Liberal brand across much of Ontario is still in pretty decent shape. In fact, the last poll that I uh, saw had them back in first place, but the forum polls, which are the ones I think that get the most currency, have them uh, in a reasonably competitive second place. The Premier's own per, uh, personal popularity, I think, dipped as low as 12%. She was the most unpopular Premier in the whole country. But this was a few months ago. That forum poll, again... I think a couple of weeks ago, had her up to 19%. So in any event, with polls, as you know, Bill, they're a snapshot of a moment. Mm -hmm. So you can't look at that one moment. You have to look at the trend. And the trend suggests that at the moment, the conservatives have been on a bit of a downward slide, and the liberals, through a whole bunch of reasons we can go into if you want, have been slowly creeping back into the game to a position where both she personally and the party generally are more competitive right now. 
And with that in mind, of course, uh, they have used the uh, well, the power of incumbency, really, uh, as you as you point out in the blog, Steve. Uh, they've been uh, pretty uh, uh, generous, I guess, when they've gone around making uh, funding announcements, this, that, and the other thing. I mean, uh, Ted McMeekin, the area MPP, has has a, a number of different announcements here. The finance minister has been here making some announcements, uh, and that does have an impact on voters. Well, truthfully, I cannot remember a time. When in the first week of June, you know, the legislature is no longer sitting. And usually at this time, you know, the government tends to kind of scale down and everybody gets ready to go back to their ridings for the summer and do the barbecue circuit and get back in touch with the home front. And yet this week, I'm not sure every single minister has been out there making an announcement, but I bet darn near every single minister has been out there making an announcement. Uh, And yes, Ted McMeekin did the basic income announcement in Hamilton uh, a few weeks back, and it has been, you know, announcement after announcement after announcement, a full-court press like I haven't seen at this time of year, maybe ever. Uh, so you've got you've got ministers out there on the hustings already. You've got uh, the notion that the Liberals are more popular right now than they were. You've got the balanced budget, which uh, first time in almost a decade that Minister Charles Souza was able to present back in uh, was it April or May now, I can't remember. Anyway, the, the budget that he announced a, a month or so ago, You've got the new Pharmacare program that they intend to roll out in July, in uh, January rather of next year. You've got free tuition for more than 200,000 uh, low-income eligible students uh, coming in this fall. Uh, you know, you've got the minimum wage up to 15 bucks an hour as of a year and a half from now. Uh, you've got the 25% electricity rate cut in uh, hydro rates, uh, which. Uh, kicked in as of June the 1st, and people should start to see on their... Anyway, you can see that these are all quote-unquote good news announcements that the Liberals have been making over the last couple of months, and it just got me speculating. That's a heck of a lot of policy to be tossing out the gate a year before an election, and it just got me wondering, are they going to go early? They could go early. Well, and and you've also laid out some of the reasons uh, politically why they may want to do this as well is that, as we mentioned at the top of the conversation here, it's one year from today that the next election is scheduled. Uh, Twelve months is a lifetime in politics, as, as we found, Steve. And uh, there's a rocky road ahead if the Liberals hang, hang on for the next 12 months. There's a potential trial that's, that's going to probably damage their brand again. Uh, a number of other things that could happen that could send those numbers reeling again. Well, that's quite true. And there, there again, as you point out, there are political reasons not to wait for another year. Uh, you know, the expression, uh, Bill, as you know, is uh, a week is a lifetime in politics. So we have 52 lifetimes before the next election. Uh, Patrick Brown really is light on policy right now as the leader of the Ontario PC party. Every time you ask him a question, what are you going to do about electricity rates? He says, well, we're having a policy conference in November. Uh, well, what do you intend to do about uh, the child care situation or a carbon tax or, you know, just fill in the blank? Well, we've got a policy convention in November. Now, that timing works well if the election is a year from today. If the election is two months from today or three months from today, the PC party would go into an election campaign really without a manifesto to run on, and that would be obviously potentially problematic for them. Now, having said that, they've nominated more candidates for the next election than either of the other two parties, and they have way more money in the bank than either of the other two parties also, so they'd be ahead on that count. Yes, the legal entanglements uh, would be something the Liberals would want to avoid. I think starting in September, uh, you know, if you hearken back that uh, whole scandal about scrubbing the hard drives of computers in the premier's office, which happened on the previous premier's watch, um, the, tri- the trials of, of those involved in that, Dalton McGinty's former chief of staff and one of the and the deputy chief of staff, I think, in the office, 
Uh, that goes ahead in September. So if you went early to the polls, you'd avoid all the daily orgy of bad headlines around that. And so these are things that the, the government, uh, you know, strategists presumably have to consider as to whether or not they want to stick with next June 7th as the fixed election date or try to go early. I have to tell you, Bill, there's not a single person, not a single source in the Liberal Party who's told me, yes, we're considering going early. For the record, everybody still says it's a year to the day that we're going. But that doesn't mean that the rumors around Queen's Park aren't going like crazy on this. They absolutely are. And uh, and that's why I sort of put that piece out uh, yesterday and today speculating about it. Well, and you know from your political background as well, though, and all the years you've been covering this stuff at Queen's Park and Parliament Hill, for that matter, Steve, that politicians deny everything right up until the time that they don't deny it. Uh, <laughs> that and and that's, that's what's going on here, and we, we get that. But you're also a political historian, as, as evidenced by the, the, the books that you've written, of course. And, and there, there's not a precedent necessarily, but there's a history to this sort of thing. A number of leaders of this, I mean, John Cretchen did it, I, I guess, more than once, I, I think. But he knew that the right was in disarray then. That was back in the days when there were still two parties on the right. And he was just figuring that was fertile ground and it paid off for him. But it doesn't always work, does it? No, and there's always a danger of, of quote-unquote, overlearning the lessons of history because, frankly, no two situations are alike. I mean, we have Deputy Premier Deb Matthews on the program tonight. Deb Matthews' brother-in-law is David Peterson. David Peterson famously in the summer of 1990 called an election only three years into what technically is a five-year term, although governments usually seek renewal after four. And remember, this was before the fixed election date, so the Premier back then could call an election basically whenever he wanted to, and everybody expected that a Premier would take advantage of his um, you know, political advantages and, and go when, uh, and strike when the iron was hot. And Premier Peterson was 25 points up in the polls in 1990. You had a brand-new conservative leader in Mike Harris that nobody knew. And, of course, we'd never elected an NDP government before, and the Premier had every reason to expect we never would. And so he called this early election to, quote-unquote, take advantage of his political situation. And, of course, as we know, uh, it, it didn't work out that way um, the public were extremely angry with what appeared to be an early, unnecessary, you could say arrogant um, election call, which had more to do with the Liberal Party's benefit as opposed to the public's benefit. Peterson lost the election. He lost his seat. Bob Ray, then leader of the NDP, won a majority government. But you know what? Ernie Eves, if you talk to him today, says the biggest mistake he ever made when he became premier, taking over from Mike Harris in 2002, was that he didn't call an early snap election. Uh, he was so... I think, um, worried about the precedent that David Peterson set, that even though many of his advisors were saying, Ernie, you're never going to be more popular than right now. Go now. And he, and he was worried about the Peterson precedent, and so he didn't go. And, of course, he ended up losing to Dalton McGinty after waiting for a year and a half. And if you asked him today, he'd say, dumbest mistake I ever made. I should have struck while the iron was hot right away. And you're right about Jean Chrétien. Twice he went early. Didn't wait the full four years. He went after three or three and a half years and uh, he won majority governments both times he did that, too. So no two situations are alike, and you really have to examine each one on its own individual merits. I, I suppose time heals wounds. Uh, at uh, Lincoln Alexander's memorial service some years ago at, at Hamilton Place, uh, you may recall David Peterson was actually one of the ones oh, that, yes. that eulogized. And, and 
David told the story of uh, when he made the decision to call that snap election, and of course he has to go to the lieutenant governor to do that, to, to dissolve the uh, the legislature. And uh, as, as Peterson told the story, he went to Lincoln, talked to him over that in Link's chambers there at Queens Park, and he says Link's response was, Mr. Premier, are you sure you want to do this? <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? It's such a great story. And, and I got to hand it to David Peterson. He told the story so well. Oh, yeah. That's exactly right. Premier, are you sure you want to do this? <laughs> but you know what? I just, I mean, for the 20 more seconds on this, just for the record, the fact of the matter is there wasn't a single person uh, advising David Peterson at the time, or maybe one, maybe one. Uh, who said, don't do it. Uh, almost every liberal thought it was a smart thing to do, take advantage of your opponents being down, take advantage of a full bank account, take advantage of incumbency, uh, do it before the recession, which was widely anticipated, kicks in. So everybody was telling him to go, and he went, and it didn't work out. You know, these things happen. There's the other side to this, too, because Stephen Harper went early uh, in, in the last federal election, too, not dramatically, but it, it caught a few people off guard when he called the election in August uh, of that year. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think that was a contributing factor in, in what eventually happened there. I think there were many more things that probably played into that than the early election call, because there seems to be one mode of thinking right now politically, Steve, that, oh, yeah, people are going to always get ticked off when there's an early call like this, but they forget about it about two weeks into the election campaign, and they just get into the meat and potatoes of that. Uh, is is that preying on their minds right now? Well, that was, of course, one of the great lessons, and I remember very well having a conversation with the then Attorney General Ian Scott back in the first week of that 1990 election campaign, where I, I saw him at a, at a political event, and I said to him, you know, uh, Attorney General, I'm picking up a lot of anger out there from constituents of yours who are wondering, why are we having an election after just three years, when it's a four-year term at least, and you can actually go five? And he said, yes, I'm picking it up too. I'm sure they'll be cranky for a few days, but then, you know, at the end of the day, people have to make a choice about who they want as premier. And then he said to me, the classic line I'll never forget, and he said, and what are they going to do, vote NDP? <laughs> well, guess what? That's exactly what they did do. And sometimes, in an effort to, you know, David Peterson's position on that was always, if we could have had the election again a day later, he'd have won. And I think there's a lot of, I think there's something to that, because sometimes the electorate wants to punish a leader for, you know, alleged malfeasances or alleged um, improprieties or bad decisions, and they just want to knock him or her down and peg, but they don't necessarily want to defeat the government. And I think that was the case in Ontario in 1990. I think people wanted to send a message to David Peterson, but they didn't necessarily want to defeat him. Well, they sent the message so strongly that they ended up, you know, uh, you could argue overcorrecting. And I think the same thing may have happened in Sault Ste. Marie last week, Bill, where we had a by-election, and the Liberals, after getting 58% of the votes in the 2014 general election, ended up with 24% in the by-election. Now, clearly, people wanted to send a message uh, to the Wynn government about whatever, you know, this, that, and the other thing. Um, but whether that result is something that you could extrapolate over the whole province and say, ooh, Therefore, that's a good reason not to call a general election right now because of what happened in Sault Ste. Marie. I don't think you can draw that straight line. I mean, these by-elections tend to be one-off things, and I remember well a by-election held uh, in Etobicoke Lakeshore eight months before the last provincial election, and the Conservatives won that one. A guy named Doug Holliday, the former Deputy Mayor of Toronto, yep, yep. won that by-election, and the Tories said, "Aha, here we go. We've got a, we're, you know, we're breaking into the Liberal beachhead of Toronto." Uh, one Tory seat today, and, and many of them are going to go Tory in the next federal election, uh, provincial election. And eight months later, that seat went right back to the Liberals, and Wynne won a majority. 
you just don't know. But isn't that the same anger at the leader in play right now? I mean, you've seen this over the last eight or ten months especially, probably as, as long as she's been premier. There is a resentment. Uh, much of it, I, I think, well, based on reasons that I, I find rather revolting. I, I, some people don't like her because of her gender. Uh, some people don't like about the fact that, you know, that, that, that she's, you know, she's as you know, she's obviously you know a same-sex partner in a, in a marriage, and and that seems to rankle some people. But she has been the lightning rod for a lot of the anger and frustration, uh, and that's why you juxtapose your blog today with what we're hearing from an awful lot of other people three or four months ago that were saying, "Forget about an early election. We want her to leave. Uh, we we got a chance to win this thing if she leaves." Well, I would make two observations on that. Number one, uh, for those who have a problem with the sexual orientation of the Premier of Ontario, my hunch is they didn't vote for her in 2014. Never and will. Therefore, and, and, and therefore are not going to vote for her this time, so I'm not sure they're part of the equation. The thing that I hear most often, Bill, is people say, we really believed in you. We really thought you were different. You came in pledging to be collaborative, collegial, different, nice, and you've been a huge disappointment. You've practiced politics like they all do, and therefore... Uh, you know, it is for that reason that we are very disappointed in, in you, Kathleen Wynne, and that's why your polling numbers are so low. Now, that's one thing I hear. But I do have to, at the same time, observe something else, Bill, and that is if you look at every single female first minister in the history of Canada or the provinces, not a single one has won re-election. And I find that fascinating. If you go back to 1993 and Kim Campbell, our first and still only female prime minister, if you go back to Christy Clark in British Columbia or Parlene Marois in Quebec or Catherine Colbeck in Prince Edward Island or Alison Redford in the province of Alberta, I don't know how the Kathleen Wynne story is going to end yet, but if you look at all of them, Rita Johnson in British Columbia again more than 20 years ago, it seems that the party members pick a woman to pick up the pieces when a man has led a party into a disastrous situation because that's really putting a fresh coat of paint on things. But then there's something about female leadership that a larger chunk of the electorate just doesn't cotton on to. And I really want to understand this phenomenon better, because to me it's more than just a coincidence that not a single female first minister has managed to win re-election in Canadian history. And that is a huge trend that Premier Wynne will obviously be trying to buck whenever she goes to polls, whether it's a year today or whether she calls it an early snap election. I find that fascinating. There's something about female leadership, and and there's just a lot of people perhaps not comfortable with women exercising power in the province. Maybe I'm reading too much into this, but i I, I got to believe it's more than just a coincidence, so I really want to think about this more, and I'll probably write something on the website about this in the days ahead. And it's there, and you know what? It's the elephant in the room, and we saw this in the last presidential campaign as well, where, uh, let's face it, there were some misogynist attitudes where people just didn't like Hillary Clinton because she was a woman. Yeah. Now, they won't say that because they know that's not politically correct, so they'd go back, well, there's this scandal and that, and well, she should have, and we're hearing the same thing. We saw that with Christy Clark in this last election. Uh, you know, the, 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 the innuendo about, you know, getting you know, money on the side for this and the pipeline and all this sort of stuff, and they, it, yeah, you know what it is? You don't like it because she's female. That's what it comes down to. Well, Bill, listen, I don't want to It's still a play here. Yeah, I, but I, I, you know, let, let's also state for the record, I don't want to take anything away from those who believe that Premier Wynne has earned the enemies that she has for a variety of reasons, and you can talk about, you know, even though this wasn't necessarily on her watch, 
you can talk about canceled gas plants that are going to cost a fortune. You can talk about high electricity prices. You can talk about all the craziness that went into that Sudbury by-election that resulted in criminal charges being laid, you know, uh, scrubbed hard drives, uh, you know, and a host of other reasons that, that, that people give that are utterly legitimate reasons for uh, not being happy with this premier. Yeah, and you can't but, give him a pass on that. You're right. No, absolutely. He can't and shouldn't give her a pass on on, uh, on the things that she has to wear. There's no question about that. However, it also needs to be said that if you're on social media in this province, there is a level of vitriol and filth that is said in connection to this female premier that, I'm sorry, I just never saw related to Dalton McGinty or Ernie Eves or Mike Harris. And, and believe me, they were plenty unpopular at times, too. But the level of viciousness seems to have reached new and ever more disgusting levels as it relates to this female openly gay premier. And I, I do wonder whether that plays a part in all of the, the hate that I see on social media these days. Well, it's uh, and, and again, I, we would be probably ridiculously uh, naive if we simply said, OK, I'm going to base what I think is going to happen in the next election on what I see in social media, because that's only a very small part of, of the people that actually take the time to, to post that sort of crap, too. So we'll have to see how it goes. Yes. Let me direct people over to the blog again, though, uh, tvo.org, and uh, go to the blog, and you can read this for yourself. And uh, it's a great read and brings an awful lot of questions on this. Steve, always a pleasure. I continue. Good luck with the Bill Davis book, and I know we'll talk again soon. Super. Thanks a lot, Bill. All Take the care. Best to you and your listeners. Steve Pakin, of course, hosted the agenda on TVO. And as you mentioned, uh, Steve mentioned to us anyway, uh, with that uh, next provincial election scheduled to be one year from today, uh, he's got a great program lined up 8 o'clock tonight on TVO about that. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. This is bizarre. Now, baseball teams at all levels, Major League right on down to the, to the smaller teams, will often hold promotional nights uh, to try to get people into the stands. Uh, you know, there, there's bobblehead nights and, you know, they give away, a, you know, sport bags or something like that. We, they get that. But sometimes they try to come up with unique and they think inventive promotions. Well, a minor league team in Utah, Ogden, Utah, this is, uh, is under fire now for what they were going to promote. It was called Hourglass Appreciation Night. The Ogden Raptors, that's a minor league ball club out there, uh, canceled the night after they got a lot of pushback from this. But here's what they were going to do. They were advertising bodies promising gorgeous women whose curves rival those of any stud pitching prospect. Advertisements decorated with drawings of women in bikinis. And they promised that a different stunner each inning would pose for pictures with the fans at the game. And they thought this was okay in 2017 to have this kind of a promotional night at a game. Well, they've called it off. But the fact that they even proposed it in the first place is, uh, well, mind-boggling, I guess, to an awful lot of people. Let's bring Theo Sellis into the conversation, registered family therapist, president of Integrity Works, and always a welcome guest here on 900 CHML on the Bill Kelly Show. Theo, how are you this morning? I'm fantastic, Bill. How are you? Fabulous. Top of the world. Would you have bought a ticket for, for this for Hourglass Appreciation Night? You're a sports fan. Look, uh, I might have bought a ticket to the game, but not necessarily for that reason. But I disagree with you. I don't think this is, did you say mind-blowing or mind-boggling? Boggling, mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. It does not boggle my mind that this happens in 2017. Uh, I don't really know if there's any difference between this and the usual cheerleader deal routine. Like, I think they're just being more overt about it. I went, uh, this team happens to be a uh, minor uh, league team 
that is a farm team of the L.A. Dodgers. So I went to Google L.A. Dodger cheerleaders, and there you go. The pictures of those cheerleaders don't look very much different than the pictures of the women that they had on their promotion. So what exactly is the difference? I don't see it as mind-boggling. I just think this is, this is the way things have gone with sports teams. Uh, as far as I can remember, we sports teams use attractive women to sell tickets, sex sells. So I'm not sure this is any different. So you're coming uh, from this from the standpoint of like the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders, things like that? Well, yeah. What is exactly the difference? I mean, the, the, the Dallas, Dallas doesn't necessarily have uh, put up promotion saying, come watch. Well, maybe they do. Maybe they do say, come watch. You, I think they probably do. You can probably get your a signature or get your picture taken with a Dallas cheerleader. I'm going to bet. I don't know this for sure, but I'm going to assume that uh, there are events where you can get your picture taken with a Dallas Cowboy cheerleader or an L.A. Dodgers cheerleader or whatever. This is standard practice, so I'm not sure this is any different. I think it's just, I think it's just uh, a little bit more overt, and people go, holy crap, that's what's happening? That's wrong. But it's happening. It's just endemic, I think. Well, why do we sit here smugly in 2017 and say, oh, no, we don't objectify women anymore. We're past that. We, we know better now. Well, I think, you know what, I think it goes deeper. I mean, the lowest hanging fruit here, obviously, is the impact of uh, women being depicted in this way on young girls and uh, the preponderance uh, of eating disorders and all that kind of stuff. I think that's, that's, the, that's, that's the more obvious uh, uh, sort of uh, problem, and, and that needs to be addressed. But I think, you know what, I think the bigger picture really is, uh, is about uh, objectification anyway in the first place. I think, and I like a lot of people understand what that actually means. I think, I think, I think that we think of objectification, we go, okay, well, women have sex objects. That's, not, that's part of it for sure. So basically what it is is if, if you Google it, you'll see the definition saying objectification is the action of degrading someone to the status of a mere object. So basically it's the idea of relating to people as if they are things uh, for your use. So it's, of course, a classic example of saying, well, women are just good for that. But I think... The problem, larger problem, is that we tend to objectify people pretty much all the time. I think that that's the problem, is when we relate to people as what we can get from them, what we can use them for. We do this in our families. We do this at work. We do this at schools. I think that needs to change. Like, if you look at your look yourself, you're an amazing broadcaster. Bill, everyone knows that. Thank you. So you're, but if your employer uh, and your coworkers just sees you as the broadcaster. What can we get from Bill? Well, he does these great interviews with fantastic guests like Theo. That's what he's good for. That's how we're going to relate to him. We don't really care about him as a person, as a human being, but his family, but what's going on in his life, and who he is, what he cares, how he, uh, what he thinks about. Then we're objectifying. We do this at home, too. I, I still remember uh, in, in my practice when I had this man refer to his wife as her name, by her name, and she cried. She cried because for as long as she can remember, she'd just been mom, mom to the kids, and even referred to as mom by her husband. She was just a mom, and so she was being used to being related to as what people could get out of her by that role. Uh, I talk about this with my students. At the beginning of my classes, oftentimes students come rushing up to me, and they start asking me questions about assignments, and I say, stop. Ask me how I'm doing. I'm not on a question uh, responding, answering machine. I'm a person. Relate to me as a person. So I think the bigger picture is how we learn to think about people beyond just what we can get from them, beyond just what their role is, 
who they are. How can we relate to people as having value on their own other than what we can get from them? In other words, identify that person as, as Theo, not as uh, a teacher or, or or you know you're you know or the you're the you know the the clerk in other words you know in other words I put some humanity to this right now but what what are the what are the problems with doing something like that aside from the obvious one of you know lack of respect comes to mind right off the bat but when you objectify somebody and let's talk about for instance on a gender basis which is what seems to be happening here and and I don't disagree with you that it happens on a much broader basis as well uh, oftentimes in sports uh, are, are they not just clinging to that old tenet that uh, that advertisers still seem to use, which says sex sells? Well, yes, and, and, and they're right. It does. And I don't think that that is going to change. And the reason why that, whether it's right or wrong, I think the reason is, is that uh, sex is interesting. Sex is important. It's the sex drive is a fundamental, natural, strong aspect of who we are biologically. So we, we, that is going to happen. And whether, whether we treat people well who we hire to do those roles is another thing. So, for instance, going back to cheerleaders, uh, cheerleaders have, have recently been taken to the courts to try to be treated fairly. So cheerleaders, I was reading about this, there's an NFL. The cheerleader, NFL cheerleaders, are, you don't know if you're aware, the NFL cheerleaders are taking uh, the NFL to court. Hmm. Uh, because they've been paid like less than minimum wage to go around flaunting themselves for people to get them to come to the games. I could have paid like 100 bucks a game, and they're not even getting paid for practice or something like this, compared to the millions and millions of dollars that the players uh, receive. So, so maybe it's not just, okay, well, you know, we, we should stop sex selling. Maybe we'll go, okay, look, if we're going to hire people, if they're going to make a choice to uh, do that for us, we need to treat them again as people with jobs, with dignity, with a life, we make sure we have to treat them well, understanding that there's more to them than what we can just get from them. We have to make sure that they're compensated well so they can make that choice. If they choose to make that choice, then we should actually treat them well. We should treat them with respect as opposed to just getting as much from them as we possibly can and giving as little back. Let's let's talk about some of those other ramifications, and, and again, to the objectification of women. And, and by the way, the team owner... Uh, when they decided they weren't going to do this, has profusely apologized and said that they in no way condone the objectification of women, so, which I guess is the right things that, that somebody in the PR department wrote for this guy. But that, but that's fine. But but let's talk about how this impacts people. If, in fact, you uh, adhere to this idea that objectification of women is okay, and clearly in some people's minds it is, how does that how does that relate to what we hear and what you and I have talked about in the past uh, about what seems to be an increase in, in, for instance, incidents of sexual assault? Is it because some people still view women as just objects that are there for their use to, to, to do with what they will instead of actually as human beings? Yeah, I, I think that that's part of it. I think that um, if you can reduce uh, someone to a single purpose for your own gratification, then uh, if one of your supposed needs are is to uh, to be able to use another person in that particular way, then the, then the experience of the person <clears throat> does not matter because they really, really their sole purpose in your mind is for your particular pleasure or your for particular gratification. And, and didn't we hear that in the Gomeshi trial from some of the, the women who testified and uh, that the, they just thought as, you know, as if they, you know, they weren't there for, for what they were offering to the program or what they were doing for the corporation. Uh, they were there for his amusement, basically. Well, and again, and I'm going to bring it back to, yes, and I'm going to bring it back to a larger 
uh, a larger uh, sort of focus. I think a lot of listeners, if you if they start thinking about their experience, will start to will identify with this this the sense that really they're just kind of like things who are being used by other people, whether it's their employer or their partner, or whether their kids or whatever it is, uh, their neighbors, whatever, like whatever it is that people can get from them based on who they are, what they have to offer. And I think, you know, I think that's such an important larger picture. Is I think if we if we teach kids to uh, to value themselves as people and to value their other people as people and to understand a little bit more about uh, what being a person means beyond just their age or their gender or their job and especially their job. Like I'm a big I'm a big fan of not asking kids what they want to do when they grow up because uh, that implies again that what's really important is to have a particular position and then people can relate to you by your position and maybe if you have some sort of higher valued position you'll have greater value because you know who you are is based on what you do for a living i'm a big fan of asking kids who they are right now and who they want to be when they are older like who they are in terms of people what's important to them as a human being what do they stand for what do they think what are they their beliefs what do they enjoy what don't they enjoy like getting to know people beyond just their role. And I think that's the larger picture. If we can get people to relate to each other, to see them, see people as having many, many aspects to them, many facets to them, beyond whether or not they are sexually attractive or not in your particular mind, they are still human beings. They are still people with their own ends, their own purpose, their own agenda, rather than what can they do for you. And, and such, even, such a simple thing, if you, if you take your kids shopping, Strike up a little bit of conversation with the person who is checking your groceries out. Ask them how they're doing rather than just treat them as a machine who is making sure that you get the stuff from one point to another point from, from, your, you know, from the store to your car kind of thing. Treat people as human beings beyond just what their specific role is. And I think that'll do a lot more to prevent objectification in general. Yeah, and look at the surprised look on their face when you do that, uh, because you don't expect that. As, as a matter of fact, oftentimes, because I, I do that when I get my coffee in the morning at the drive, you know, I said, "How's you? How are you doing? How, what's going on?" Right. And and the first couple of times, because it's usually the same person that's there, they kind of look back at me like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! I'm not used to. I'm not programmed to be able to respond to that." It's usually yeah. just, "It's uh, that'll be two forty-five, please." And you know, here's yeah. the change. Have a nice right. day. Uh, you know, right. the usual stuff, the cliche stuff. Because uh, yeah. we don't seem to expect that, and it's almost to your point. Uh, you know, let's look at it from the other perspective. We're almost not trained to, to be able to accept that because we're not used to hearing it. Yeah, you know, in other words, we identify ourselves by by the position or what we do as opposed to yeah. who we are. Yes, yeah, so it's a, it's a it's a it's a kind of a shock in a way. It's a pleasant shock. I I teach a, a university as a fourth year course. It's an empowerment course. How to how to be empowering in, in your in work. And one of the uh, many assignments, uh, challenges I think I ask my students to do is go and find an invisible person and talk with them. And they go, what do you mean, an invisible person? I go, you know what? Every day people walk by the people who somehow mysteriously, magically and mysteriously, the washrooms stay clean. The floors are always swept. The windows are always clean. Uh, you walk by and you use all these things. But there are people behind them, and these people typically are invisible. People just walk by them. They're like sometimes they're wearing a uniform, sometimes they're they're not, but they're just busy doing something, and they're literally kind of seems like they're invisible as opposed to they're human beings. I go, go and find an invisible person and sit down with them or ask them how they're doing or just say hi or whatever or thank them for what they're doing. And it's like a completely different mindset. People like just aren't used to thinking of that, right? But when we start to think about people 
as being human beings rather than something that gets things done for us, that's when it'll change. That's when, that's when young girls, young boys will learn that they have value beyond just what they do and what they have to offer and what their appearance is about or what their age is or what their gender is or what their role is. Like who we are as people that has value and innate innate value for themselves, not just for somebody else, but their own unique purpose. Uh, Samantha's listening to our conversation, bkelly900chml.com, and says, well, how do you account for the fact that, that, that oftentimes women in this particular case, since we're talking about this uh, this hourglass uh, appreciation night, uh, go along with this? He, she says, what's that say about them? Well, I, I don't know. You, if you're talking about the women who are being hired for yeah, that. Yeah, I, I, I think that's what she's saying, yeah. Well, I, I don't think, again, I don't think the very act of going along with it necessarily means that you yourself as a woman, and I've listened to women talk about this as clients, and I've clients who have different kind of jobs, including, you know, escorts and uh, dancers and all that kind of stuff. They don't necessarily feel disempowered all the time. They don't necessarily feel degraded. A lot of them have a sense of that they're making that particular choice. And whether or not they should be able to make that choice or not, that's, that's a whole other kind of conversation. But they may make the choice because they feel like that they can. They don't feel necessarily taken advantage of. They still may be, but they still may feel good about themselves in terms of they're using this themselves in order to, you know, maybe feel good about themselves or earn some money or whatever it is, that kind of thing. But I think the more important thing is is how we look at them once they make that choice. Do we still see them as people? When when we have our daughters to the games and they see cheerleaders, do we have conversations with the daughters about what they think about that? What it would be like for them to be a cheerleader? What would be the challenges? What would be the good things about it? What might be the bad things about it? How people might think of them? How they might value them? Like, have conversations about what it might be as a person, a human being, to be a cheerleader, rather than say, no, but cheerleaders are bad, they're wrong, we should hide that. I don't, I don't think that's going to work. I think that that's going to continue, but it's how we think about, how we talk about the people who are doing the job. As an experiment, here's a challenge that I'm going to put out to you and the listeners. The next time you're at a party and someone comes up to you and says, what do you do? Talk about your hobbies. Talk about your passions. Talk about your interests. Talk about anything besides your job. <laughs> because, of course, what you're expected to do is talk about your job because how well that defines you. Challenge that. Start talking about more about you as a human being and be sharing that just to see what they say and see how they respond. Whether they're like, what are you talking about? But I mean, what do you do? What's your, what do you do? I told you, I garden, I read, I hang out with my son, I do some writing, whatever this, that's what I do. And sort of see if you can push it to, to sort of expand your definition of yourself beyond just some sort of role, some sort of thing that you do that's somehow supposed to serve a purpose for somebody else. I always have to be aware of the fact that when I bring Theo onto the show, he's going to give us homework to do. Uh, I'm going to be part of a social experiment. Uh, we got to break it off. We're right out of time. Theo, thanks as always. Great talking with you again today. You are welcome, Bill. Theo Sellis, of course, from Integrity Works. Uh, go to the website, by the way. There's some great stuff on there. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.